Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. The White House announcing a new rule on overtime pay, which could affect 3.6 million people. Meanwhile, business groups are already planning to fight back. Today on the show, we check in with the Writers Guild of America East and Documentary Workers United. Welcome to the Thursday, August 31st edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Lisa Takuchi Cullen. She is with Writers Guild of America East, a union that has been on strike since May 2nd. A little background on Lisa. She's a TV writer, author, and journalist. Currently in an overall deal with Universal TV, under which she is developing several drama series. She has developed drama pilots for Apple, Netflix, ABC, NBC, CBS, A&E, and Warner Brothers. She also served as a co-executive producer of NBC's The End Game and a consulting producer on Law and Order SVU. She previously worked as a foreign correspondent and staff writer for Time Magazine and has published two books. She's also the vice president of the Writers Guild of America East film, television, and streaming sector. And she serves on the negotiating committee in her capacity as the Writer Guild of America's East vice president. So we're going to talk about this strike here. By the way, uh, this union, this is Writers Guild of America East. Now, they're based in New York. West is based in Los Angeles. Their membership on the east side of the country is about 47 100 writers and media professionals. Members are the primary creators of what is seen, heard, and read across television, film, radio, as well as the Internet. The members create everything from big-budget movies, independent films, to TV dramas, sitcoms, comedy, variety shows, daytime TV, nonfiction, reality television, broadcast, cable, streaming, news, and online media podcasts, web series, animation, to reality TV shows and documentaries. In general, the membership is divided into three groups based on three types of contracts that they negotiate. And she'll get into some of the nitty-gritty on that. But the issues, residuals, the fact that artificial intelligence, which has taken off all around America, could gobble up a lot of jobs and screw a lot of people that have been working in TV and film for over the years. So that strike started again in the beginning of May, and there were some talks, but they have broken off, and she'll fill us in on what's happening right now. But it doesn't look like there's going to be much of a fall season here, especially with the SAG-AFTRA strike, and that started in the middle of July. Later in the show, we're going to go out to uh, Los Angeles and check in with Documentary Workers United. Now, they're affiliated with the Communication Workers of America. This would be local nine zero zero three and we're actually going to be joined by three individuals this is a first for america's workforce we usually talk to one person at a time sometimes two this time it's three we're going to start things off with kenyon johnson 
Kenyon is a former Clevelander, and he's working out in Los Angeles on behalf of the Communication Workers of America. He'll explain what they did. And actually, this happened uh, last month, July 21st. Documentary Workers United voted unanimously to ratify their first union contract with the International Documentary Association. And uh, on their website, they write as cultural and arts nonprofit workers. Our efforts are often unseen and undervalued by the organizations that employ us. But amongst filmmakers and other industry professionals, we know that we are appreciated. We love our work and we want to be able to continue our work without fear of retaliation and exploitation. So essentially, they're a nonprofit work organization. And uh, we'll talk about the importance of unions there, ratification of their contract. And we'll be joined by three individuals, as I indicated. There's Kenyon, and we also have Anissa Hosanesov. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, she's from Iran. She's a filmmaker. And uh, her work focuses, focuses on issues of displacement and immigration. So she'll talk a bit about that. Also joining us is a member of the bargaining committee, and that would be Gabriela Ortega Ricketts. So we'll talk about what's going on and what happened with that contract, which was, again, ratified last month in Los Angeles. Now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management. You can find more at boydwatterson.com. The Biden administration proposed a new rule yesterday that would make three 0.6 million more U.S. workers eligible for overtime pay, thus reviving an Obama-era policy effort that was pretty much scuttled in court. Now, here's the deal. The new rule would require employers to pay overtime to so-called white-collar workers who make less than $55,000 a year. Now, that is up from the current threshold of $35,568, which has been in place since 2019 when the Trump administration raised it from $23,660. In another significant change, the rule proposes automatic increases to the salary level each year. Labor advocates and some lawmakers have long pushed a strong expansion of overtime protections, which have sharply eroded over the past decades due to wage stagnation and inflation. Now, the new rule, which is subject to a public commentary period and would not take effect for several months, would have the biggest impact on retail, food, hospitality, manufacturing, and other industries where many managerial employees meet the new threshold. Julie Sue is the acting labor secretary, and she said in a statement, I've heard from workers again and again about working long hours for no extra pay, all while earning low salaries that don't come anywhere close to compensating them for their sacrifices. Now, the new rule could face pushback from business groups that mounted a successful legal challenge against similar regulation that Biden announced as vice president when he was in the Obama administration, when he sought to raise the threshold to more than 47,000. But it also falls short of the demands by some lawmakers and unions for an even higher salary threshold than the proposed $55,000. Now, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, 
almost all U.S. hourly workers, hourly workers are entitled to overtime pay, and this is after 40 hours a week, at no less than time and a half their regular rates. Salaried workers different. Salaried workers who perform executive, administrative, or professional roles are exempt from that requirement unless, unless they earn below a certain level. That's what we're talking about here. The Economic Policy Institute, great organization, epi.org, they have figured that about 15% of full-time salaried workers are entitled to overtime pay under the Trump-era policy. That's compared to more than 60% in the 1970s. Under the new rule, 27% of salaried workers would be entitled, almost double what it is right now. Business leaders argue that setting the salary requirement too high could force many companies to convert salaried workers to hourly ones to track working time, and that would be cumbersome. A group of Democratic lawmakers had urged the Labor Department to raise the threshold to $82,732 by 2026, which would be in line with the 55th percentile of earnings of full-time salaried workers. Now, the National Association of Manufacturers, they warned last year that they may challenge any expansion of overtime coverage, saying such changes could be disruptive at a time of lingering supply chain and labor supply difficulties. Under the new rule, about 300,000 more manufacturing workers would be entitled to overtime pay. This, according to the Labor Department, a similar number of retail workers would be eligible, along with 180,000 hospitality and leisure workers and 600,000 in the healthcare and social services sector. So this is one to watch. Again, this is something that came out of the White House yesterday. There will be a time period for people to comment. You can comment on this if you go to the uh, the Labor Department. Just Google overtime pay and it'll take you right there. And you know there's going to be a lot chimed in by conservatives and business groups. Speaking of which, the chair of the Education and Workforce Committee, that would be Virginia Fox, who does not like unions. I've talked about her many times on the show. This is what uh, she said yesterday. Biden's Department of Labor has proposed an overtime rule that is misguided and partisan. This rule will stifle workplace flexibility, lump burdensome costs on job creators, and ultimately hold back the very people the Department of Labor should be supporting the most, working Americans. She didn't point out that a lot of working Americans are getting screwed, but that's Virginia Fox. For the first time, the United States has requested a rapid response labor mechanism. This is under the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, USMCA, the committee chaired by the United States Trade Rep Catherine Tai, and acting Secretary of Labor Julie Su had sent a petition to Mexico to review allegations that the Grupo Mexico organization had violated the labor rights of its workers at the San Martin Mine, since Mexico's finding that Grupo Mexico had not committed a violation, the U.S. has now requested a panel 
to review those abuses. Stay tuned on that one. All right, it's time to take a quick break here. When we come back, Lisa Takuchi Cullen will be joining us on behalf of Writers Guild of America East on strike since the beginning of May. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers, and we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at uaw.org. The Iron Workers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight iron worker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great iron worker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Iron Workers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you could check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, always connecting people with employment, good employment, I might add. ULAgency.org is their uh, website. Let's go to New York City right now. Welcome a newcomer to the show. Her name is Lisa Takayuchi. Cullen, and she is with Writers Guild of America East, which has been on strike since the beginning of May. Lisa, did I pronounce your name correctly? <laughs> Takeuchi, but close enough. Close enough. Takeuchi. Okay, well, thank you, you for joining us today. It's good to get that out of the way. And sure. uh, I read your bio. My gosh, you've done everything. TV writer, author, journalist, um, and author of two books. Uh, from your mouth to our airwaves over here, there's a lot in between. Uh, how long have you been doing this? Maybe you could run down a couple of shows that you were involved in. Go ahead. Sure. Like you say, I was a journalist for many years, mostly at Time Magazine, where I was a foreign correspondent and then a staff writer. I uh, published a couple of books, and then I stumbled into television writing 
by writing an article for Time magazine that I thought for no good reason could become a television show. I had absolutely zero idea how to go about it. And it was just about the time, however, that uh, we were starting to realize that perhaps a print newsweekly magazine might not be the forever job that we thought it was. So I and my peers uh, were looking around and uh, thinking that, you know, perhaps it's time to uh, seek a different path. So I put up my hand for uh for a package, and um, because I'd been at Time for uh, a long time, I, I got a very generous buyout and um, used that, that uh, money and that time to learn a new craft, as so many Americans have to do these days. And uh, my, my one and only uh, skill is writing, um, that and extremely fast typing. Uh, so I figured uh, that, that I, could, I could really only look in a, in a few different uh, categories, um, and one of them was TV writing. Um, I got extremely lucky. I wrote a pilot uh, that was uh, the term is on spec, meaning that that it's on speculation, speculative that anybody will ever buy it or pay you money for it. Uh, but this one uh, sold to CBS and got made. And then um, I uh, got to uh, have the the extreme privilege of um, of entering this you know cabal of people who get to pitch and write television shows for a living. Um, so so that is what I have been doing. Um, I have worked on uh, some shows, uh, some you know already running shows as well, including Law and & Order SVU and an NBC show called Endgame. Um, and, uh, and I've, you know, I've been extremely um, fortunate uh, in this extremely difficult uh, profession. Um, but I, I see how the profession has changed even in the relatively short, uh, slightly over you know, 10 years that I have been part of it. Um, when I entered the profession, it was still uh, largely broadcast TV focused, um, meaning that most employment came from shows that ran on the broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, uh, Fox, the CW. And those shows provided a, a year's uh, wages as well as work. So a show like Law & Order, for instance, might uh, have 22 to 24 episodes per season. That's easily 40 weeks, 40 plus weeks of work for the writer. Not only that, you are producing while you are writing. So at SVU, for instance, the sound stages were just down the hall from the writer's room. So every day I'd wander down there and uh, grab a snack from Crafty and, and sit uh, in, in Video Village and, and get to you know be part of the action, learn how a show is produced, learn what role a writer plays uh, on set. Um, and that was a tremendous um, and valuable education for me. Um, and then on top of that are the residuals. So from a broadcast network, the residual system has long been what keeps writers alive during the the down seasons. So sure. when an episode that you wrote uh, reruns on cable or overseas, you get a, a really nice check. Um, and uh, and that, that check can pay a lot of bills um, in, between, in between seasons. And all of that has gone away in the time being uh, with the advent of streaming. So you took this giant leap in life as a journalist. You go in as a TV and movie writer, and then, like you said, it, it's, it's, it, things were going really, really well, and then all of a sudden, it's all going away. And uh, 
Let, let's talk about that, because this is the discussion that's going on right now with the Writers Guild of America, East as well as West. And it, let, let's talk a little bit about East. Now, I was reading it was like 4,700 members in the New York City area. Is that is that pretty accurate then? Uh, we actually have 7,000 members, and uh, the reason you have that number is that um, we have we represent three sectors. Uh, so we have um, over 4,000 uh, members, about 60% of our membership, who are television or screen writers. Uh, we also have a segment of our membership who um, write for broadcast news, and that has been since the inception of WGA East. Recently, over the past eight years or so, we started to organize in the digital uh, news um, sector. So uh, these are companies like Vice and HuffPost. Um, and, uh, and so that has added another segment of membership, um, resulting in about, about the 7,000 uh, that we have now. So there's a bunch of different contracts then with all these uh, di- these divisions then because I, I bring that up because I'm a member of uh, SAG after I started out in after in 1974 and then after joined I was say about maybe 10 11 years ago now the SAG after folks are on strike but I'm not on strike because this involves broadcast and podcast that's not part of that is that kind of a similar thing that's going on with the Writers Guild. That's correct. So our broadcast news members, for instance, are not on strike with us. Our online media members are not on strike with us. However, they have shown us tremendous solidarity by supporting us on social media. Many of them join our picket lines. Uh, of course, they have actual job jobs, so um, they can't you know, be out there all the time. But when they can, uh, they are out there holding picket signs with us. Our uh, council, we, uh, we have a, a board of directors called a council. Um, uh, members who represent those sectors have been tremendous supportive of us and uh, it has really greatly increased our, our solidarity during this time. So Lisa, let's talk about the, the negotiations or lack thereof. I guess they, they came to the table, management came to the table with something that they thought was acceptable and I guess it's not. Can you uh, can you give us some details of what they're proposing and where we stand right now? Sure. I mean, I can uh, dial back a little bit to what we uh, began with um, television and uh, screen writers are facing an existential crisis, um, and that is all uh, based in uh, the existence um, and the, the uh, advent of streaming um, as, a, as a platform. Um, we had a system that worked before, a system that paid writers adequately and that, uh, that you know, had a, a residual system um, that, that uh, continued to allow us to participate in, in um, the profits of our employers. And all that has gone by the wayside um, uh, with uh, really the, the introduction of Netflix and then the, um, the rush of the other companies to copy that model. Um, so all writers are asking for are a fair share. Um, it's a fair share in the, the massive profits that these companies continue to make. Um, and, uh, and that's what we've asked for uh, from the start. Um, the companies have uh, made about 200, I think industry revenues are about $220 billion last year, um, about $30 billion in entertainment profits alone. Uh, and, you know, when the streamers say that they do not uh, have profits, that they are not yet profitable and therefore cannot share in those profits, um, that is not what they are telling their shareholders. You know, Netflix, I think, reported $6 billion in profits last year and Disney and Warner's 
uh, are expecting to, you know, be profitable um, in their streaming services uh, over the next year or so. Um, so uh, where we are right now is that um, the studios finally came back to us. Uh, they had not um, picked up the phone once since we went on strike in May 1st. Uh, they finally came back to us um, a, a couple of weeks ago with a counter. And they did move on um, some points that they said they would never move on. Um, so, you know, we were gratified and encouraged by that. However, they uh, refused to continue to negotiate. Um, so negotiations have not broken off. Uh, we, you know, do uh, continue to wait for them to uh, to counter again. Um, and uh, as you are well aware, having, you know, lived through so many uh, negotiations in, you know, your time uh, in your union, um, negotiations are, are you know, it's, it's simply a business conversation, right? We're supposed to go back and forth. Um, well, how about this and how about that? And um, uh, we are at the point now where the studios need to make uh some significant concessions in order to meet us where we stand. And the Writers Guild is united. Um, we have uh, never seen historically this kind of unity and solidarity. We have SAG-AFTRA right behind us with the same un- unity and solidarity. And we're confident that they'll, um, they'll come uh, back to the table with, uh, with those concessions. Lisa, I have to ask you this. The fall season, when when all the new shows start, doesn't that play into this right now? I mean, aren't they going to say, well, wait a minute, this has gone too far here. We, we got to sit down. We got to really get serious. Is, is that part of the conversation right now? Or do you think that's going to happen or what? Yeah, well, that ship has long sailed. The fall shows are not going to start. And, you know, all of uh, the folks at home, waiting for their next season of Law and Order are going to tune in in September and, and uh, find um, sports and, you know, game shows, which are, which are terrific in the, of their own, but, uh, but uh, it's, not, it's not the shows and uh, the movies that Americans and people around the world have come to expect and are waiting for. Um, that may be the first time a consumer is aware of the strike, but I would highly doubt it. There was a recent Gallup poll that showed that the majority of Americans uh, not only know about the strike, but are in support of us. Uh, so I, I think I think that the, the story is nearing its end. Um, the studios, uh, we believe, recognize that they have to make some changes that they were the ones who broke a business model that worked and they continued to keep their heads in the sand for years now, hoping that the, the writers and the performers and the crew and everybody else who who creates the products that they sell wouldn't notice that their paychecks are getting smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that we are no longer able to pay the rent or to pay for our groceries or for our children's school supplies. And it is simply not sustainable anymore. And we are a massive workforce. They cannot do what they do without us. And uh, once they recognize that fact, and we think that they have recognized that fact, they just need to get their story together so that they can figure out how they're going to, to fix all fix what they broke. Um, then I think that um, that you know we'll we'll be in real talks then. 
sad part about this, Lisa, they are trying to do without you. And that brings up the subject of artificial intelligence. So hold that thought. We'll talk about that next. Lisa Takayuchi Cullen joining us from the Writers Guild of America East on strike since the beginning of May. We'll continue the conversation with her later in the show. We're going to check in with Documentary Workers United. They're celebrating their first contract with the International Documentary Association. It's all part of America's Workforce. Back in a few. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The The United United Steelworkers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrance with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms now. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora, and when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings. And please, if you like a show, share that show. It's important. We like to count the downloads. Our sponsors like to know how many downloads, and we are growing and still growing. It's amazing, too, because like six, seven months ago, we were in the top 15% of all podcasts, and now we're in the top 5% of all podcasts. It'd be nice to get into the top 1%, and it's happening. So we appreciate those of you listening to America's Workforce. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go back to New York City right now. And joining us on our live line is Lisa Takayuchi Cullen. And she is vice president of film, TV and streaming for Writers Guild of America East, which has been on strike since May 2nd. The website, by the way, is wgaeast.org. We've been talking about the the issues in the strike with streaming. There's been a big switch here over the last, I'd say, decade here with the networks kind of losing audience and everything's going to streaming. The other issue is artificial intelligence, and this is also affecting those with SAG-AFTRA. They've been on strike since the middle of July. Lisa, why don't you explain? There's a lot of people that really do not comprehend what artificial intelligence is. And it's really sweeping the the 
the country right now in various industries. They're embracing it. A lot of workers are concerned about losing their jobs, and you're in that category. Can you tell us what's going on right now with this uh, with this issue? Sure. I think like most Americans, I only really heard about artificial intelligence uh, very recently. Uh, it always seemed, you know, had I heard of it at all, it seemed like something out of a sci-fi movie, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, kind of um, a futuristic, uh, you know, situation where there's a computer uh, that, you know, starts to think on its own and do the things that, that humans are normally uh, doing. Um and uh, to be honest, though, that assessment is not far from the truth. Um, over uh, the you know the uh, recent years, technology has vastly advanced to the point that uh, computer systems really can do uh, creative work—the kind of work that we uh, presumed uh, that machines would never be you know capable of. Um, can they write like a writer? Uh, can they act like an actor? No, but the simulation can be close enough that our studio employers are very eagerly searching for ways to use those computer systems to replace us. And that is where we must draw a line. So what we are looking for, the Writers Guild of America, are guardrails so that we can protect our work uh, from um, any kind of, you know, of, of overreach. We are not saying, to be clear, that we think all of AI should go away. We don't uh, believe that that can happen. We're not Luddites. We know that technology is coming and that it will change our industry. But what we don't want, for instance, is for um, an AI-generated script to uh, to be made without any human writer input um, because we know that there is human writer input. We know that these systems are trained using our work without our permission. So we think of AI as a plagiarism machine. What they do is they, they chew up our scripts, our books, our articles, and then spit out some simulation of, of that work. They don't do it that well yet, but it's getting very good very fast. And so what we are asking for is some way to control our work and, uh, and our input on that work. You know what comes to mind here in this conversation? Writers are the creative part of a movie or TV show. So what they're essentially using is all the old creative combining all those thoughts and all those words and regenerating a new script using old creative. Am I, am I, am I framing this correctly? Is that what's going on right now? Um, that is, that is correct. And so we would like some control about what, which of our work they're using to train those systems, um, as well as, you know, the work going forward. But I'd like to also, if it's okay, talk about how that affects inclusion. Um, because, you know, you might not equate uh, the advent of AI with, uh, you know, with diversity um, issues. Uh, but it plays a large role because think about the movies and TV shows that have existed up until this point. They overwhelmingly represent one 
type of person, right? One demographic um, and no other. We are finally, finally in a time of great diversity in the work that we that we produce and the work that Americans and people around the world are seeing on their television and film screens. But that work, for the most part, won't be reflected. It will be, it's a numbers game. So the, the amount of creative work that has been output so far represents, again, one viewpoint. And so right. that will be what AI spits out going forward, right? Um, the, uh-huh. the, you know, movies uh, of, the, of your, uh, you know, that, that, again, were great. Uh, were great creative works, but are, don't progress. They they do not show you know change and um, and diversity uh, that we see today in our society. So um, so we do think that 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 plays a role as well. Well, you know, there's some people, elected leaders, that kind of like that that direction. You know that, Lisa, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm told that, but I, I will say that this is a bipartisan issue. I think that um, that you know Democrats and Republicans alike are are uh, sufficiently alarmed about AI and their potential to uh, to greatly impact uh, this nation's economy and workforces. Um, this. Uh, impacts everybody, as you said before, from, you know, from, you know, steelworkers to farmers to actors uh, to writers. Um, it's it's all colors of, of the collar of work, um, blue collar, white collar, pink collar. And, you know, doctors, lawyers and nurses, all of us risk being replaced by machinery. And to some extent, that is unavoidable, as we have seen throughout history, and as I'm sure you have covered time and again. Um, but, uh, but we also have to protect our humanity. We have a duty, I believe, as a country to protect our citizens and protect their income sources. And so we just have to find a humane way to work with the, the new technology that's coming. Absolutely. I see you work with uh, diverse writers of the East. That sounds like another show. Maybe we could set something up in the not too distant future when all this settles down. But I'll tell you, we're at the crossroads right now. And this is really, really scary. And I know it's exciting to some, but um, my hat's off to you, all the writers. And we'll throw in the actors, too, on behalf of my union, SAG-AFTRA. This is a tough one. I mean, you've been on strike since uh, May 2nd. SAG-AFTRA has joined in. There's a lot of solidarity. You certainly have 100 support from this show, America's Workforce Radio and Podcast. So you hang in there. Stay safe and stay strong. Okay, Lisa? Thank you. We so appreciate your time, and thank you to your listeners for, for caring. All right. The website you want to go to is wgaeast.org. Lisa Takayuchi Cullen, Writers Guild of America East, where she serves as a vice president of film TV and streaming. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go to Los Angeles and check in with Documentary Workers United. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. 
America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the North Coast Labor Federation. Let's go to Burbank, California right now. And this is another cool story. We know there's a lot of organizing going on in America. A whole lot of organizing. And uh, we're going to talk about the Documentary Workers United Union, which unanimously voted recently to ratify their first union contract with the International Documentary Association, the IDA. Joining us on our live line now, we have three individuals. We're going to start off with Ken Jan Johnson. Ken is Executive Vice President of the Communication Workers Local 9003. Ken, I'm going to start with you, and maybe you could introduce our other guests here, but uh, Talk to me about your role, and this is certainly good news, and I should mention the website, too, documentaryworkersunited.com. Ken, what's going on here? Go ahead, brother. Uh, Nothing going on. I'm glad to be here on your radio show. I am uh, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, so um, to to be interviewed from that city is is a huge um, honor. Um, I am uh, the executive vice president currently for Communication Workers of America, Local 9003, that is located in Burbank, California. I had the honor of being part of the bargaining committee uh, for Documented Workers United, um, representing uh, international documentary associations. Uh, first contract on the line joining me is Gabriella Ricketts and Anissa Hoshenshot. Um, I apologize if I pronounce your name wrong, Anissa. I've been trying no, this for so long, great. and I hope it sounds great. Um, sounds I, 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 great, great. I'll pass, <laughs> I'll pass that off to them um, so they can uh, formally introduce themselves. Gabriella? Hi. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Gabriella Ortega-Ricketts, and I am the manager of artist programs at IDA, and I am uh, also on the bargaining committee of DWU, and it's such an honor to be here. Okay, let's Hi, go to Anissa. Yes, yes, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm Anissa Hossein-Najad, and I am the Membership and Individual Giving Program Manager here at IDEA, and I'm also uh, on the bargaining committee with Gabriela and Kenyon, and it's such an honor to be uh, on your show. And Anissa, we should point out, is an Iranian artist and filmmaker. I, I take it you grew up in Iran? Is is uh, I Am did. I correct in assuming? Yeah. And how long have you been no. in the States now? Uh, I moved to the U.S. in November of 2012, so it's been uh, 11 years. 
coming November. Well, let me ask you, if you don't mind, stop right there. I mean, when I, when I think of Iran, I think of bad things, okay? And it's just because <laughs> I, I, I know what's been going on in that country. Uh, were you a filmmaker there, and how were you treated? I'm re- really curious about that. Um, I am not. I did not uh, uh, work as a filmmaker back in Iran. I mean, I was just coming out of high school, starting early college, so it was pretty um, – pretty early for me but you know that that is true like there's a lot of um censorship and hardship that the iranian um filmmakers and artists and uh, cultural production workers are dealing with um but i do also want to say that you know we're uh, on the union side there's also a lot of strong um unions especially in the south where i used to live with uh workers within the oil companies who are like currently even under the current um, hardship, are doing a lot of great organizing and uh, mobilizing all the workers together because, you know, we, as we all know, um, it's only any, any form of, like, um, so social change or political movement can really be successful if the workers are involved and united with, um, with the rest of the people. So I'm really excited about that kind of development in Iran. Good, good, good. I see some of the work uh, that you've done focuses on issues of displacement, immigration, and militaristic U.S. imaginary. Now, what can you explain that for me? <laughs> I got really um, obsessed with U.S. advertisements and how they imagined um, this global warfare uh, landscape. So I think that's what I would say is the U.S. imaginary. If you look at that, oh, okay. they're pretty wild. I get it. Let's go to uh, Gabriella, Gabriella Ortega Ricketts. Now, she's a member of the bargaining committee. Again, we're talking about the communication workers. One of our partners here on America's Workforce nationally, this would be local uh, 9003. So, Documentary Workers United recently voted to ratify their first union contract with the International Documentary Association. Gabriella, I would imagine that was not an easy process. I've heard all kind of horror stories. Can you speak to uh, how that uh, kind of panned out? The the bargaining process or the ratification? I mean, the ratification was amazing. We ratified unanimously, and I'm so, so grateful to all of our members who really um, supported us and believed in our contract, which we also do. Um, you know, there was a lot of organizing that we had to do. We're a small workforce. Uh, we have 15 people in our bargaining unit. And so, you know, on top of bargaining and negotiating the contract, which was a challenge in many ways, as it always is, mm-hmm. we also had to, you know, build solidarity on a team where there was, you know, not a lot of communication previously. And I'm really proud of the work that we did in that regard. Um, in terms of negotiating, I mean, it was a we the the probably the biggest challenge is that Anissa and I both joined uh, halfway through the nego- negotiation uh, process due to staff turnover, so we had to really pick up the pieces and um, you know it kind of find our way in like in the middle. <laughs> Anissa and Kenyon, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, I, I would I would say, you know, bargaining started off very smoothly, but uh, unfortunately in the middle of bargaining a contract, um IDA um retained new leadership. 
Um, and so it, it was almost like we had to start all over. We had to learn the process of the new leadership on what they were looking for. Um, so at that point, it did uh, bring up a little bit more attention, um, but we are grateful that we were able to get a contract and to get a tentative agreement and to get the contract ratified. Anissa, you want to add to that? Go ahead. Um, no, I think uh, Gabriella and Kenyon speak, spoke to everything. I just want to mention again how grateful we are to CWA, who really um, championed us through the process and really like um, taught us how to be leaders, organizers, and community members all together. So we're really, really grateful to Kenyon specifically and, uh, and the entire CWA. I have to ask the question here, uh, when it comes to documentary work, this is truly a labor of love. I mean, long hours, grueling hours, and you're really digging into your subject matter. Is this, to your knowledge, either any one of you can, can speak to this, is this like a first when it comes to uh, making documentaries to have to have a union involved? Do we know anything about that? So we are IDA. The work that we do is that we are a nonprofit that supports documentary filmmakers um, a- across the, the board, basically from all stages of their career, all levels of success. And we feel really strongly about that. And even though we and, and in addition to that, we are also filmmakers ourselves. But IDA's work is not making films. But despite that we are not actually making our films, we do work those same long hours, uh, the same kind of grueling, (laughs) uh, you know, work ethic. And the thing about nonprofits is, as I'm sure you know, is that nonprofit workers are often really exploited. There is always the mission above the person. And even though there's no technical profit involved, it's the work above you know, a work-life balance, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so we, our union is, I believe, uh, one of the first art nonprofits to have a ratified contract and is, I believe, the first documentary film union to have, uh, for, sorry, first nonprofit union to have a film contract. Uh, sorry, oh my God. The first documentary and film nonprofit to have a rat- ratified contract. But we really hope that this kind of lays the groundwork for all other uh, nonprofits to follow suit because it is a vastly under-unionized work, I don't know, uh, structure, organization, I guess. Mm -hmm. And nonprofit workers really, there's a lot of, I think, misconceptions about the work that we do, no matter the field. And a lot of people saying like, oh, but that, why would you, you know what you're getting into working at a nonprofit. You should know that you're not going to make a lot of money and that you're going to be exploited. But the fact is, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> we all deserve, no matter what job we choose, we all deserve to have fair treatment and fair pay. Whether mm-hmm. or not we work for a huge corporation or a small nonprofit. As for the documentary film industry, we also really believe that that is an area that needs to be unionized, especially with the SAG-AFTRA strikes, the WGA strikes, in the face of hot labor summer, as it's been dubbed, the documentary field needs to be more unionized. And we really support all documentary filmmakers who are working to make this happen because there are not a lot of resources for documentary filmmakers either. Uh, We make less money. We don't have health care provided by the union. We don't have um, pensions or anything like that that other film unions do have. 
Um, and so whether it's a film nonprofit or documentary filmmakers, we really support um, the unionization of all of those efforts. Amen to that. Uh, Ken, I have a question for you. CWA, very powerful union. They're also one of our national sponsors here. I could only assume they helped you out on this. I mean, this was this was some new territory for the CWA. I was just, <laughs> go ahead. Well, well, you know, we're we're always looking to what's happening with Communication Workers of America. Uh, we currently represent almost nine hundred thousand members throughout the, the country. Um, our local has approximately close to four thousand members now. Um, what we look at is. We are local right now. You know, we've always dealt with like tech companies or telecom. Um, sure. What we're learning now is the world is changing. I mean, and you have to adapt. There's a lot of more smaller groups that want to be unionized. And um, a documentary workers united were one of those groups that came to us. And mm-hmm. we're always going to take on a challenge. Um, this was one of, at the time I was bargaining another nonprofit group, but this was the first film documentary group that I was able to work on nonprofit. Was it challenging? I would say yes, but we like to take on challenges and now we have a new wave and we're hoping just like Gabriella and Anissa said that other documentary workers will find their, find their way and become union. Um, What we found out was some of the things that were going on inside of their uh, company was crazy. You know, just working and not knowing when your day is off not having a structure, doing so many job titles. Um, What we were able to do is help them get organized to make sure that they're not going over their scope of work and doing what their job title says by defining their job role. So it was huge. Healthcare, we were able to get over $45,000 in retro pay. Um, Pay raises were increased tremendously. And uh, we're hoping that other groups follow their lead. Um, They are... Um, the one started in, and Gabrielle and Anissa um, should, should, should hold their head up high for being one of the people to revolutionize uh, something like this. It, it was a great opportunity. So Documentary Workers United called on the CWA, and the CWA delivered. I like that. Local uh, 9003, <laughs> Burbank, California. Kenyon, Gabriella, Anissa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, solidarity forever, okay, brothers and sisters, all right? Completely. If I could just say one last thing. Go ahead. Um, uh, Our contact information is on our website, documentaryworkersunited.com. And if you have any questions about unionizing your film nonprofit or your nonprofit, please feel free to reach out to us. We are more than happy to get involved. Again, that website, documentaryworkersunited.com. And that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to check in with the Columbus Central Ohio Building Trades and the Transportation Communications Union. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.